Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Gunfire and explosions have been heard in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. I decided to conduct a special military operation. Whoever would try to stop us should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. Russian forces are closing in on Ukraine's capital as sources say Kiev could fall to Russia within days. Hostomol Airport, 10 kilometers outside the capital. It's actually now under the control of the Russians. Ukrainian troops are proving to be a tough underdog clawing back territory from Russia around Kyiv. President Zelensky says the strategic town of Liman has been cleared of Russian forces and what's being seen as yet another humiliation for the Kremlin. Whoever is able to make weapons fastest and whoever is able to supply ammunition fastest will have the edge in this war and will most likely win. It was exactly one year ago today, on the 24th of February 2022, that President Putin implemented his grand plan to take control of Ukraine. Twelve months on, and the conflict shows no signs of abating. Peace? Well, it's no longer a word mentioned by world leaders. Instead, President Putin has indulged in escalation by withdrawing Russia from nuclear treaties. And President Biden, well, he's promised that the US is in this for the long haul. Its support for Ukraine will not waver. So what does all this mean? How do we get to this point in history? And what developments are we likely to see next? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and to help us answer these questions, I've invited Professor Michael Clark onto the Warfare podcast. Mike is one of the UK's leading defence experts, and as a professor for over 30 years, he's advised governments, militaries and world leaders alike. He is the perfect person to guide us through the key turning points and potential next steps for the war in Ukraine. Hi Mike, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. And to be honest, I'm surprised it's your first time. But it's great to have you here to help us take stock of Russia's offensive war against Ukraine, which is now a year into the fighting. So tell us, Mike, listeners will remember the initial miles-long convoys of, of Russia's almost victory march into Kiev, or at least that's what they thought was going to happen. Take us through some of the key moments that have occurred over the last year. When was it that Ukraine really started to fight back? Well, they started to fight back really from more or less the first day. I mean, they refused to believe that it was going to happen until about 36 hours before. 
And when it did happen, there were two very key things from Kiev's point of view, one military and one political. The military one was that the Russians took Hostomel Airport, which is the military airfield on the outskirts of Kiev, and that was going to be their jumping-off point for the paratroopers to move into the centre of Kiev, get hold of Zelensky and kill him, and take over the government in one go. And the point is they did get Hostomel Airport, but they were driven out. So the Ukrainians retook it, and the failure of the airborne troops to hold Hostomel, which was going to be there, you know, they could get any amount of material in once they held Hostomel. So the failure to get that was critical. And then the political turning point was very, very soon after the invasion. And it was, you know, Zelensky going onto the streets of Kiev and doing a telecast from there with his cabinet saying, look, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Here I'm in the middle of Kiev. He's here. He's here. The cabinet's here. The government are here. We're not going anywhere. And, you know, in modern history, there aren't many times when real events turn on single dramatic moments. But that was one of them. Because if he hadn't done that, the world would not have believed Ukraine would fight and the Americans wouldn't have been so clear in backing Ukraine. And so it was that moment where it was clear that the Russians were not going to have a pushover and there was something to fight about. And the, with that, Biden said, we'll do whatever it takes. And from then on, the complexion of the whole thing changed. If Zelensky had left Kiev, then the whole thing would have been over, more or less as the Russians intended in a matter of weeks, three days to take Kiev and then another four or five weeks to settle down everywhere else in the country. That would have been the answer. I think you're absolutely right. And a lot of people are calling that Zelensky's Churchill moment where he proves to the Americans that Ukraine will stand strong. They just need help. Absolutely. What is it that convinced the Ukrainians, Mike, in the first place, that there was going to be this invasion in the next 48 hours? A lot of people have said that one of the biggest intelligence coups in history took place. You have someone so close to Putin in the Kremlin that they're able to take those war plans, feed them out to the Americans and the British, and then those were just publicised as far as possible, broadcast to show that Russia was lying about... I think it was saying it was doing a training mission, a a defensive operation. There were loads of false flag exercises. Was it that intelligence failure for the Russians that meant that the world could see what they were truly up to, what Putin was truly up to? Well, American and British intelligence were dead right. They were completely right on this. And I don't think, I mean, it'd be nice to believe if we were writing a novel about it or doing a TV series, that it was one single person in the Kremlin that made the difference. I doubt that, even if there were some human intelligence sources. And of course, there's been lots of speculation about that. But there were lots of other indications, which the British and the Americans were building up since September, October of 2021. And they could see the way these so-called exercises were, were building up in Belarus and in Western Russia that they were actually more than just exercises. And I mean, I could see much nearer to the date of the invasion. I could see that this was getting real because medical units came forward. And that's quite unusual to bring medical units forward in a an exercise. And then I saw they brought blood stocks to the medical units. And that confirmed to me that this would be a military operation because you don't take blood to an exercise unless you intend to do some fighting. And that was a clincher for me. And that was only about, I don't know, a week or 10 days before. But the intelligence picture was exactly right. And the British and Americans made a very clear point of saying, we'll tell the world this because we might be able to, as it were, make it too difficult for the Russians to do it, make it too difficult to Putin to do everything we say he's going to do. 
and we might be able to divert him. And of course, the rest of the world, a lot of people said, oh, you're just making it worse and you're building up tension. And we said, no, no, this is what we think he's going to do. And on that issue, I mean, there's been any number of intelligence failings over the last you know, 30 years for British and American intelligence. But on that, they were absolutely and completely right. And against that, German intelligence was not very good. And French intelligence was completely and utterly wrong. French intelligence, they said, look, we understand the Russians. We get on better with the Russians than anyone else in Europe. We know what they do. And French intelligence was giving exactly the opposite picture to the Ukrainians, as a result of which, you know, the French intelligence chief had to resign afterwards and there have been big changes. But the Ukrainians, they because they didn't want to believe the British and American picture, they chose to believe the French picture and the German picture because it was easier for them to believe that. And it wasn't until very close to the invasion that reality really hit them. You know what, Mike? I almost forgot that moment. And that's why it's so important to take stock and just figure out exactly how it is that this conflict has unfolded. That moment where we were talking about Zelensky's Churchill moment, well, that was Macron's Chamberlain moment, wasn't it? Where he said there wasn't an invasion, it wasn't going to happen. An embarrassing turn of events, but one that Macron has tried to turn back onto his side by France being a key and major supporter of Zelensky. And of course, it's this external support that was vital for Ukraine to help turn the tide of the war and push Russian forces back. Do you think it was these external arms supplies that were vital in this moment? Was it the supply of Turkish TB2s, for example, that were the pivot to help Ukraine turn that tide in the war? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Ukrainians had good organisation and they were a Western-style army in a way, mainly because they'd been trained increasingly by Western forces and by Western NATO methods. And so, you know, in 2014, they were so abject that in a way they went back to square one and they built up from the base. So they started to do the basics correctly, which the Russians have never done. And so what they did is they built themselves an army that looked like a Western army and had the spirit and the discipline and the, the structure of authority that a Western army has. But then they didn't have enough weapons. And the, what they got quickly, uh, the ones that made the difference were the N-laws with the anti-tank weapon, the Javelin anti-tank weapons. They received a lot of American Javelin anti-tank weapons. And as you say, the Turkish Bayraktar drone, the TB2s, in the early phases made a big difference. And the Ukrainians were very good at improvising with them. And so they had just enough at the start to conduct a dynamic defense. You know, when you've got a, a, such a big border with Belarus and Russia, you can't defend the whole border. And when you're outnumbered, as they were to begin with, you just can't hold a line and just fight until you die. You have to move. And so what they did is they conducted a dynamic defense, hitting and retreating, hitting and retreating. And they were very careful about what they hit because they obviously realized, maybe they thought this through beforehand, that Russia's weakness is its logistics. So people kept saying, why don't they attack the tanks? Well, they did eventually. But if you attack the fuel, if you attack the maintenance trucks, if you attack the food supplies, eventually the tanks don't go anywhere. And that's exactly what happened with this big, long convoy that got to the west of Kiev and then stopped because they ran out of fuel. The Russians had fired off all their ammunition in the first three days. Remember, these Russian troops, not a single one of them had ever, ever been in combat before. Right, so Russia's war fighting over the last 15 years has always been with militias in Syria and Libya and Chechnya with some of their elite forces and their air forces just sort of giving the top cover, as it were. But all these Russian conscripts and these Russian contract soldiers, they'd never been in battle before. So they did what soldiers always do. They fire off all their ammunition on the first day. So they ran out of ammunition. They ran out of fuel. They ran out of things that they'd sold because the troops themselves 
were convinced that they were on exercises because that's what they were told until literally 24 hours before they were told, no, you're actually going over the border to fight. By then, they'd stripped all the GPS stuff out of their tanks and sold it. They'd sold the fuel. They'd sold anything that would move because these were all, or many of them, were from the eastern provinces, uh, the eastern republics. And they found themselves in western Russia or Belarus, which are quite rich. And so they found that if they got out their tanks and took a load of stuff to the market, they could get good prices for it. And so the tanks that invaded in February had terrible communications, no GPS, not much fuel. They'd literally flogged everything they could find that somebody would buy. You see, there's so many elements there to unpack. I think one of the key things for me as you were talking, I was thinking about all those experts at the time were saying that Russia should have no problem against drones. Look at its experience in Syria. It had been facing drones for a few years on a regular basis. Russia said it had perfected its air defence against these systems, but it just didn't play out time and time again. And perhaps it's exactly for that reason you state. It's because this wasn't a whole cadre of Russian special forces. These are recruits, conscripts that are pulled up and pushed up into the front lines. They didn't have those expertise. And with this in mind, a lot of experts are now saying that we're about to have a Russian spring offensive with hundreds of thousands more troops building up. But what might this entail? Are we likely to see those same scenes? These are, again, hastily conscripted, hastily trained Russian troops. So many of them grabbed from prisons. Is this going to be history repeating itself? In a way it will, I think, because the quality of Russian soldiers isn't going to improve in the sense that you can't improve it in a matter of months with training facilities that are already overwhelmed because Russia's training facilities until this operation were really quite small and they sent most of the trainers and most of the equipment straight to the front. So when they've tried to recruit twice the number that they would normally have going through, all the instructors were already fighting in Ukraine. So they've had to create more instructors and so on. So there's severe bottlenecks. So I don't think the troops are going to improve but probably their commanders will because all armies learn. And I don't think the Russian commanders are going to make the same mistakes. They're more strategically coherent now. I mean, more brutal than they were to start with, but more strategically coherent in that brutality in the way they are operating. But certain things you can't put right. I mean, one of the things that the the Russians really lack is a a cadre of NCOs, non-commissioned officers, sergeants and corporals. They are the backbone of any army. Anyone who's been in the military will tell you, you know, your sergeant is the one who looks after you, nags you, makes you do things, and the sergeant will make you a good soldier and keep you and bring you back safe and sound at the end of it. You look to your sergeant for everything. But in the Russian army, as in the old Red Army, the sergeants hate the men, the men hate the sergeants, the sergeants are all on the fiddle, they're brutal, and you can't create a cadre of NCOs because these men have got to have years of experience in the military before they become good corporals and good sergeants. It's experience that makes them what they are. So they won't fix that inside the next decade or so. And their logistical problems will still be their logistical problems. You can't fix that. It's so corrupt. There's so, so many bottlenecks. But I think they will be tactically more astute when they arrive on the battlefield. And they will arrive on the battlefield in quite big numbers. Not overwhelming numbers, but they will come in quite big numbers. And I think there, there is a sense in which I think they'll try and stretch the Ukrainians in several places at once. I mean, that's what any commander would do. They, they know where their main effort is going to be. I mean, we can guess that their main effort will probably be in the Donbass to consolidate forces there and and get the whole of the Donbass, which is always one of the things that Putin has said he wants. They'll try and consolidate across the land bridge from the Donbass to Crimea and then west to Kherson again. And I think that'll be their main effort. But I think they'll put other attacks in, including probably surrounding Kiev, 
in order to stretch the Ukrainians. They might even try an amphibious operation against Odessa. They'll probably come from Western Russia towards Kharkiv again on, and then north of that Sumy and Chernihiv. You can imagine any commander, if you've got the forces, you'll say, OK, we'll have three or four diversionary attacks. And even though the enemy knows that these attacks are diversionary, they've got to put something against them. You can't just ignore them, otherwise they'll become main attacks. So there'll be three or four diversionary attacks, but the main effort, which is where the bulk of their best equipment and best troops will be, is probably going to be in the Donbass and then across the land bridge. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You mentioned a lack of trained troops there, Mike, and I can't help but agree with you on that, but there's one particular section that has a lot of press all of the time and that of course is the mercenaries the wagner group tell us will they make any sort of difference in this fight do they have the numbers not really i mean i think the wagner group they've reached their peak now and i think they're in they're going to be in decline from now on partly because there's about between five and ten thousand wagner fighters in theater these are mercenaries who've been around they've been in syria they've been in libya they've been in the central african republic they've been in mali so these are quite experienced very brutal ex-professional soldiers about five or ten thousand of them but then wagner have recruited 
some say up to 50,000, I think that might be a bit high, but certainly about 40,000 convicts, which is what everyone concentrates on. But that flow of convicts is more or less dried up now. And Wagner have announced this week that they've suspended the process of recruiting from prisons, partly because recruitment has dropped off, because even in the prisons, they've realised what happens, that your chances are really very poor indeed, and that Wagner don't keep their end of the bargain, which is to say, you know, we recruit you, we will put you on the front line, If you disobey an order or retreat, we will shoot you out of hand. But if you are still alive in six months' time, you can go free. And a lot of them actually took that deal. But then they found that when they were alive in six months' time, they weren't allowed to go free. They were made to sign up again. And that got through to the convicts that actually signed up with Wagner really as a sort of a death sentence with better food. So most of them won't do it. And Prigozhin, the leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner group, he's been trying to play political games because he thinks he's a friend of Putin just because he used to cook for him. And in fact, the, I mean, what's happened is that the, the Russian army have girded themselves together to stop mercenaries, the Wagner mercenaries and the Chechen group under Kadyrov, to stop the tail wagging the dog. Because, you know, these warlords, you've got these two big warlords with their war lord forces who are out of control really and the russian army shogu uh, the minister of defense in early january the first week of january i think it was announced a series of reforms both reforms in the army and reforms at the top and clearly he was consolidating army power with putin and Gerasimov, who's now the chief of the general staff who's now responsible for the whole operation in ukraine in order to sideline the mercenary groups and stop them having such political influence. So I don't think, although you know, the Wagner group get a lot of publicity because they are so graphically brutal, I mean, it's hard to find words for the sort of things that they do and the things that they take pleasure in and pride in and put all over the internet. But I think their strategic significance has never been great. And I think it'll get less now because you can't integrate these people into a proper sensible army. You know, they're individuals and, and the Wagner group themselves, they have their own artillery, they have some of their own aircraft, they have their own supply lines, they've got their own source of income because Prigozhin has got lots of interests in African mining. And so they fund a lot of this stuff themselves, and a lot of it goes via Putin, who funds them in other ways. So you can't integrate these people into a sensible combined arms battle. And if you did, they'd be a bloody nuisance. And so they tend to operate just on their own as light armed forces, you know, elite armed forces who can move into an area as killers. But they're not soldiers. They're just killers. You see, that's an interesting point. So when we look at the makeup of Russian forces, we have Russians and Chechens, and the Wagner Group, which recruits from many places around the world. Is there anything we're missing in that makeup of Russian forces? Has Russia been able to recruit internationally? Where Ukraine has got international material support, has Russia been able to get troops from other nations around the world? I mean, we've seen that the Iranians are supplying far more material as well. We've got the building of an Iranian drone factory that's likely to produce 6,000 drone systems for the Russian to use. Do we see that changing into perhaps actual boots on the ground? Where does Russia have that support? Yeah, I mean, they've got some volunteers from some African countries, some Middle Eastern countries, Syria. And there's a lot of people saying they've volunteered, but there's no evidence that they're making any difference. In fact, there are more international volunteers, as far as we can see, working for the Ukrainians than there are for the Russians. And interestingly, the Russians haven't been able to recruit anybody from the areas, you know, the states that Russia is supposed to be close to, not from Belarus. I mean, there are Belarusians fighting in Ukraine, but they're fighting for the Ukrainians. There are two battalions of Belarusian volunteers fighting for Ukraine. There are no Belarusian soldiers fighting for Russia. Same with Kazakhstan. 
I mean, Putin saved Tokirev's bacon early last year, I mean, president of Kazakhstan, but he won't send him any troops. He won't give him any help whatsoever. And the makeup of Russian forces is quite interesting because you won't find many Russian soldiers from Moscow or Petersburg or Novgorod. You know, they just don't. They're all coming from places like uh, Yakutia or uh, Magadan or Krasnoyarsk, all these places in the centre and east of the country. I mean, that's where they're recruiting from because whatever money they're getting on contract, you know, makes more difference to them. And they don't really know what they're doing in Ukraine. So in a way, it's kept the political temperature lower during mobilization because what Putin doesn't want to do is to upset the, the middle classes of Moscow and Petersburg who see their sons and nephews going off to war. But that is now changing because the need for mobilization is pulling in some of these Western, very white Russians, as opposed to the more Asiatic Russians who Moscow doesn't care about very much. You see, that's a good point, because whilst we've seen protests in those regions, if they're not in Moscow, then you're not going to have any reporting about them, or the West isn't going to see them as clearly. So do you think there's going to perhaps be more scope for civil unrest, for protests in the streets, if you start getting recruits from these richer families? Well, that's hard to say because it's very hard to protest in Russia anywhere and there are no vehicles for protest now. There's no mechanisms to, as well, mobilise popular protest. And it has to be said, you know, the majority of Russian citizens, until certainly quite recently, quite supported the war and seem to support the war because they support the aims of the war. There's a sort of an innate feeling that it's about time Russia stood up for itself and it's about time the West stopped pushing Russia around. And they don't really know what the war is about. It's only that they've been fed propaganda that the West is trying to destroy Russia and they feel that we ought to respond. And that's quite a strong feeling. I suspect it'll turn out to be quite brittle in the end because you know the, the deal that Putin has really done with the population of Russia, his, his unique sort of social contract, was that I will increase living standards for ordinary Russians and you just support what I'm doing in the rest of the world to make Russia a big power again. And that social contract is now breaking down because the Russian economy is, is beginning really to hurt as a result of the war, as a result of sanctions, even though it's got plenty of cash because of energy, the, the underlying economy is beginning to actually stress and strain. Mobilisation is very unpopular. And I think the Russians, although they, they're still very sort of defiant about this, they can't understand quite why the world holds them responsible for so many things, why the world blames them for so much. And so I think that although we won't see mass protests against Putin, but I think we see a degree of disquiet, which is getting like the, the degree of disquiet he suffered after 2015 when Russian pensions all went wrong. And there was a lot of, I mean, he really had to do some fast footwork because pensions were just inadequate and some of them were creamed off by corruption. And he really had to change the whole pension system. He really had to retreat on that to save his skin, which he did. And he may find that he's under pressure again like that now. But I mean, if you say, well, who is likely to remove Putin? It won't be popular protest. It will be the Siloviki, the security organizations, the, the organizations around him. So the military, the security services, and some of the oligarchs, again, who've entered into that same social contract. You know, we will support you, Mr. President, as long as you let us get on and make money and have our yachts in the, in the Caribbean and our yachts in the Mediterranean. We won't worry about your foreign policy as long as we're free to make money money will keep on supporting you. And that relationship is under strain as well because they don't now have their yachts in the Mediterranean and their assets have been frozen around the world. And it's getting much tougher now to be an oligarch supporter of Putin. So Putin's support is perhaps draining away, but a stalwart, like I mentioned before, is still Iran. So back to this Iran point. 
Do we think that Iran is going to continue an important role in this war? Do we think that the, the role for Iran will increase? Well, the Iranians are playing with fire. I mean, they like the idea that the Russians have got to come to them almost on their knees for some help. And the Iranians are supplying the Shahid-136 drone and they're helping, as you said, to create joint production. There's a question of whether the Iranians will supply ballistic missiles. The Fatah-110 and the uh, Zolfaga are the two missiles. The Zolfaga is a version of the Fatah-110. And the Russians could really do with those missiles. And at the moment, the Iranians are quite reluctant to supply them because then they may attract more United Nations sanctions or sanctions which are legitimized by the UN because of the transfer of those particular capabilities, which they're not supposed to be able to do anything over 300 kilometer range and anything over, I think it's 500 kilogram warhead. So they are being very careful. But equally, there's a sort of a triangular relationship. I mean, the Iranians are being held back by Russia from intervening further in northern Syria. And the Russians are being held back by Iran from getting too close to Israel. It's like a sort of scissor stone paper game that's going on in the Middle East between Israel, Russia, Syria and Iran. And all of them are counterbalancing each other. And so ultimately, the Iranians and the Russians are in a sort of temporary relationship, but both of them are being very cautious as to how far they go. And the Iranians feel that this is a chance too good to miss because the Russians need them and they can get some nuclear expertise from Russia, but the Russians don't want to give them too much nuclear expertise. So the thing sort of chases its tail. It goes round and round. And I don't think that this relationship will get very deep. I think it'll sort of bubble along as a sort of very instrumentalist relationship. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But we're not really going to get too close to each other. And let's be perfectly honest, Iran has its own domestic problems to deal with at this moment in time as uprests continue across the country. Now, Mike, bring us back to the moment that we're in now, to February. And as we progress through to March 2023, what key battles are happening? What is Ukraine facing? Well, at the moment, this week, or for the last few days, the Russians have been pressing quite hard on the areas where they'd lost ground in the, in the last few months, particular battles at Kramina and Svatove, north of Kramina. So it's the P-66, the highway P-66 is a main artery, north-south, comes from Russia right through to the Donbass. And Ukraine was very close to taking that. They had the highway under their artillery fire. They are in the middle of Kramina. The Russians look as if they're putting in a big push now using their regular troops from really quite good divisions to push the Ukrainians further westwards. And they're also pushing a bit further south in areas like Vuladar and further north at Kubiansk. So places that they lost a while ago, they're pushing on. And I don't think that's necessarily the start of the new offensive. I, I suspect what the Russians are now doing is called pinning the enemy in place. I think they're trying to pin the Ukrainians in one place so that they can't afford to leave those areas while they get ready to strike somewhere else. And I think that the Russians will probably try to surround Kiev again. I don't think they can take Kiev. I don't think they would want to. I think it'd be far too difficult and far too messy to actually take Kiev. But it's a fair chance that they will actually approach Kiev, if only to force the Ukrainians to send good troops to defend it. And so I think we're seeing a lot of preparations for the sort of offensive that the Russians plan to launch. And what we don't know, of course, is how quickly the Ukrainians can pull all their new equipment together and reorganize their forces, which they're working furiously to try to do at the moment, in order either to launch their own offensive or to use these forces to counter the Russian offensive. For the moment, the Ukrainians, they are short of time. 
And this winter, this Ukrainian winter has been less severe than it might have been. It may be over a bit sooner than usual. I think the Ukrainians would have been better off if there's been a hard winter and it lasted longer. But it looks as if it'll come to an end a bit sooner than usually is the case. And that will, in this case, will favour the Russians. So with this offensive in mind, is this why Zelensky is making trips to London all round Europe looking for air support? And how likely is it that this air support is going to come? Will you see F-16s, MiG-29s, F-35s? Will these be sent to aid Ukraine? Well, MiG-29s are already in Ukraine. Nobody's got a problem with sending those. But what they need is Western NATO air power. And the F-16 is the best fit. The other one is the Gripen, actually, the Swedish Gripen. Those two aircraft would make a big difference. They'd be easy to train on, easy to maintain. There's lots of them around, particularly the American F-16. So a bit like the Leopard 2 tanks. Um, Lots of different countries could give them F-16s and they'd have common servicing and all the rest of it. And my goodness, they need them because, you know, we tend to look at the the battles. We tend to look at maps and you think of maps as ground forces and tank armies moving around and so on. But that's only possible if somebody controls the airspace above them. If you lose control of the airspace, then basically your tanks are very, very vulnerable. The most vulnerable part of a tank is the top. And if you've got aircraft launching missiles at you, as it were, from above, then you are extremely vulnerable. So these offensives that are coming, and they're going to be pretty fierce, they're going to be more fierce than anything we've seen in 2022, will also be dominated by a ferocious air battle, I think. I can't believe that the Russians are not going to come back with a big air fleet with missiles, heavy bombers and fighters to try to sweep the Ukrainians out of the airspace above the battle zone, as they intended to do back in February, March and failed to do. And, you know, one of the unsung sort of heroes of all of this is the Ukrainian Air Force, who kept going. You know, they didn't beat the Russians, but they actually matched them. They fought them to a standstill in the air for long enough for their ground forces to do what they needed to do. And they'll have to do the same again. And they need the aircraft. And they need the aircraft yesterday, the day before yesterday, and the day before that. You know, if the Europeans and NATO are going to have another meeting to discuss the principles of it and try and persuade the Germans and all the rest of it, then it'll be too late. You know, we're talking now about just-in-time deliveries of tanks and armoured vehicles. When it comes to aircraft, I suspect we're going to be just too late. Mike, I don't know if you agree, but it sounds like we're building up to a very dangerous moment. A point in this conflict where Russia will have to start to deploy some of its most valued assets, which will degrade its ability to defend itself, say the West were to get involved in the war. But the West itself is in a similar situation. You know, I'm based in Denmark. Denmark's given all its howitzers over to Ukraine. A lot of the forces in Europe, in NATO, and including the United States, are exhausting their existing stocks of munitions and of key military hardware. Is this a worrying moment? Because it takes a long time to rebuild this stock. I mean, we look at some of the industrial bases, there's a wait list of 30 years on some of these key systems. Are we reaching a point where it's getting out of control? Well, I think there are two factors here. Both of them are easy to say, and they're both very important. One is that this war will get a lot more dangerous before it gets easier. We're heading for a more dangerous year. The fighting will be fiercer. The risks will be higher for all of us. That's not to say that it's spinning out of control. We can still control all these risks, but we can't pretend that we can dial this down because this war is going to get more ferocious and we will end up, I'm certain, giving Ukraine more potent weaponry to match Russia's more potent weaponry in greater numbers. That's the first point. And the second point, as was pretty clear within the first month of this war, is that this marks the return of industrial warfare to Europe. Simple as that. And we have not seen industrial warfare in Europe since the Second World War. 
And as you mentioned, all the implications of that is that we don't have the production facilities, defense industries have all consolidated in the last 20 or 30 years. So most governments have only got one or maybe two suppliers they can go to, and everyone's going to those suppliers. So they physically can't produce enough missiles. They physically can't produce even artillery shells, which are the simplest of the big items to produce. The Americans have just placed orders to treble their stocks of artillery shells. In Britain, we've hardly done anything on that. And as has been revealed this week, if the British forces, let alone the army, went to fight in this sort of operation, we'd have run out of ammunition inside six days. Simple as that. So that means, you know, we could send our much vaunted army abroad and they would lose. Not because they wouldn't fight well, they'd lose because they would run out of ammunition. And one of the things that worries me there as well is that the West relies on incredibly high-tech systems with their semiconductors and their microprocessors and we rely on strategies of precision warfare and we saw even with operation inherent resolve and the fight against isis that we ran out of these smart bombs when we were bombing mosul and had to turn back to those more old-fashioned dumb bombs as they call them isn't it simply the case that our stocks of munitions are harder to replace they take longer to replace and so in some cases our strategies that we rely on might be redundant uh, to an extent but there's also another side to that which is that high tech does give you the ability to improvise quite well so a very good example of that would be the, the british brimstone missile it's called a brimstone dual mode seeker and so it's a brimstone missile which is an air to surface missile it's been around a long time and if you put a different sort of warhead on it with an anti-tank shell in effect you end up with a really accurate missile which is very discriminating. So if you're firing it at a, at a vehicle, you can choose which window it goes through as the vehicle is going along. And the accuracy of things like brimstone you know, are improvised from different technologies. Similarly, it's not difficult to create drones. You could produce 20,000 drones a month easily because the high-tech production allows you to produce cheap and cheerful drones. And it's what you put on the drone that matters, not whether the drone is supersonic or whatever else. As long as it sort of buzzes along and you've got enough of them, it's what's on the nose, it's what the drone is going to drop that really matters. So in general, of course, if you have exquisite technologies, then you're not going to have as many units of, of those technologies. But there is scope for improvisation. And you see that in countries like Israel, Ukraine are very good at improvising. They're really good at improvising material. And we're beginning to learn in America and the United Kingdom, there's a lot of improvisation going on. And the Americans are just about to give the Ukrainians a new type of missile and bomb, which is Boeing have put together. They said, this missile, this bomb, we've got lots and lots of them. Put them together. Look how good it is. Nobody thought of that before. So yeah, it is happening. Well, war breeds innovation, and it sounds like the European and American industrial war machines are firing up. They are firing up, but they're not firing up quickly enough, and they don't have enough political push behind them. That's the problem. They're capable of doing the sort of things we're talking about, but they're not doing them fast enough. So we need to see that political will to get even more involved and in some ways to try and stop the war from escalating. We need to show the Russians that we have these stocks in reserve and it's going to be an endless supply to Ukraine, not a limited supply to Ukraine. Absolutely. Yeah, I go along with that completely. Well, like you say, Mike, it sounds like there's a dangerous year ahead where combined arms are going to be key. But is there scope for peace talks in all of this? It may seem odd to say, but as we know all too well, history shows us there has to be suffering on both sides before these talks can take place. Is now the window for peace? 
Not now, no. I mean, somebody wrote an article saying this is the storm before the calm. These offensives will play themselves out. There'll be a new situation maybe by the summer on the ground in Ukraine. And depending on what that situation is, that might drive what would be an unstable ceasefire. It will be unstable, but at least then politicians could take a breath and say, well, where are we? But we can't say that at the moment because both sides will fight, see what the outcome of that fight will be. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.